Book Three, Part Two of Plato's Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Allman. The Republic by Plato. Translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book Three, Part Two. Enough of the subjects of poetry. Let us now speak of the style, and when this has been considered, both matter and manner will have been completely treated. I do not understand what you mean, said Adamantus. Then I must make you understand, and perhaps I may be more intelligible if I put the matter this way. You are aware, I suppose, that all mythology and poetry is a narration of events, either past, present, or to come. Certainly, he replied. And narration may be either simple narration, or imitation, or a union of the two. That again, he said, I do not quite understand. I fear that I must be a ridiculous teacher when I have so much difficulty in making myself apprehended. Like a bad speaker, therefore, I will not take the whole of the subject, but will break a piece off in illustration of my meaning. You know the first lines of the Iliad, in which the poet says that Chrysus prayed Agamemnon to release his daughter, and that Agamemnon flew into a passion with him, whereupon Croesus, failing of his object, invoked the anger of the god against the Achaeans. Now as far as these lines and he prayed all the Greeks, but especially the two sons of Atreus, the chiefs of the people. The poet is speaking in his own person. He never leads us to suppose that he is any one else. But in what follows he takes the person of Chrysus, and then he does all that he can to make us believe that the speaker is not Homer, but the aged priest himself. And in this double form he has cast the entire narrative of the events which occurred at Troy and in Ithaca and throughout the Odyssey. Yes, and a narrative it remains both in the speeches which the poet recites from time to time and in the intermediate passages? Quite true. But when the poet speaks in the person of another, may we not say that he assimilates his style to that of the person who, as he informs you, is going to speak? Certainly. And this assimilation of himself to another, either by the use of voice or gesture, is the imitation of the person whose character he assumes? Of course. Then in this case the narrative of the poet may be said to proceed by way of imitation. Very true. Or, if the poet everywhere appears and never conceals himself, then again the imitation is dropped, and his poetry becomes simple narration. However, in order that I may make my meaning quite clear, and that you may no more say, I don't understand, I will show how the change might be effected. If Homer had said, the priest came, having his daughter's ransom in his hands, supplicating the Achaeans, and above all the kings. And then if, instead of speaking in the person of crisis, he had continued in his own person, the words would have been, not imitation, but simple narration. The passage would have run as follows. I am no poet, and therefore I drop the meter. The priests came and prayed the gods on behalf of the Greeks that they might capture Troy and return safely home, but begged that they would give him back his daughter, and take the ransom which he brought, and respect the god. Thus he spoke. And the other Greeks revered the priest and assented, but Agamemnon was wroth, and bade him depart and not come again, lest the staff and chaplets of the god should be of no avail to him. The daughter of Chrysus should not be released, he said. She should grow old with him in Argos. And then he told him to go away and not provoke him, if he intended to get home unscathed. And the old man went away in fear and silence, and when he had left the camp, he called upon Apollo by his many names, reminding him of everything which he had done pleasing to him, whether in building his temples, or in offering sacrifices, 
and praying that his good deeds might be returned to him, and that the Achaeans might expiate his tears by the arrows of the god, and so on. In this way the whole becomes simple narrative. I understand, he said. Or you may suppose the opposite case, that the intermediate passages are omitted, and the dialogue only left. That also, he said, I understand. You mean, for example, as in tragedy. You have conceived my meaning perfectly. And if I mistake not, what you failed to apprehend before is now made clear to you, that poetry and mythology are, in some cases, wholly imitative. Instances of these are supplied by tragedy and comedy. There is likewise the opposite style, in which the poet is the only speaker. Of this the dithyram affords the best example, and the combination of both is found in epic and in several other styles of poetry. Do I take you with me? Yes, he said, I see now what you meant. I will ask you to remember also what I began by saying, that we had done with the subject and might proceed to the style. Yes, I remember. In saying this, I intended to imply that we must come to an understanding about the mimetic art, whether the poets, in narrating their stories, are to be allowed by us to imitate, and if so, whether in whole or in part, and if the latter, in what parts? Or should all imitation be prohibited? You mean, I suspect, to ask whether tragedy and comedy shall be admitted into our state? Yes, I said, but there may be more than this in question. I really do not know as yet, but whither the argument may blow, thither we go. And go we will, he said. Then, Adamantus, let me ask you whether our guardians ought to be imitators, or rather, has not this question been decided by the rule already laid down that one man can only do one thing well, and not many, and that if he attempt many, he will altogether fail of gaining much reputation in any? Certainly. And this is equally true of imitation. No one man can imitate many things as well as he would imitate a single one. He cannot. Then the same person will hardly be able to play a serious part in life, and at the same time be an imitator, and imitate many other parts as well. For even when two species of imitation are nearly allied, the same person cannot succeed in both, as, for example, the writers of tragedy and comedy. Did you not just now call them imitations? Yes, I did. And you are right in thinking that the same persons cannot succeed in both, any more that they can be rhapsodist and actors at once? True. Neither are comic and tragic actors the same. Yet all these things are but imitations. They are so. And human nature, Adamantus, appears to have been coined into yet smaller pieces, and to be as incapable of imitating many things well, as of performing well the actions of which the imitations are copies. Quite true, he replied. If then we adhere to our original notion and bear in mind that our guardians, setting aside every other business, are to dedicate themselves wholly to the maintenance of freedom in the state, making this their craft, and engaging in no work which does not bear on this end, they ought not to practice or imitate anything else. If they imitate at all, they should imitate from youth upward only those characters which are suitable to their profession, the courageous, temperate, holy, free, and the like. But they should not depict or be skillful at imitating any kind of illiberality or baseness, lest from imitation they should come to be what they imitate. Did you never observe how imitations, beginning in early youth and continuing far into life, at length grow into habits and become a second nature, affecting body, voice, and mind? Yes, certainly, he said. Then, I said, we will not allow those for whom we profess a care and of whom we say they ought to be good men to imitate a woman, whether young or old, quarreling with her husband, or striving and vaunting against the gods in conceit of her happiness, 
or when she is in affliction, or sorrow, or weeping, and certainly not one who is in sickness, love, or labor. Very right, he said. Neither must they represent slaves, male or female, performing the offices of slaves? They must not. And surely not bad men, whether cowards or any others, who do the reverse of what we have just been prescribing, who scold or mock or revile one another in drink or out of drink, or who in any other manner sin against themselves and their neighbors in word or deed, as the manner of such is. Neither should they be trained to imitate the action or speech of men or women who are mad or bad, for madness, like vice, is to be known but not to be practiced or imitated. Very true, he replied. Neither may they imitate smiths or other artificers, or oarsmen, or boatswains, or the like. How can they, he said, when they are not allowed to apply their minds to the calling of any of these. Nor may they imitate the neighing of horses, the bellowing of bulls, the murmur of rivers and roll of the ocean, thunder, and all that sort of thing. Nay, he said, if madness be forbidden, neither may they copy the behavior of madmen. You mean, I said, if I understand you aright, that there is one sort of narrative style which may be employed by a truly good man when he has anything to say, and that another sort will be used by a man of an opposite character and education. And which are these two sorts, he asked? Suppose, I answered, that a just and good man in the course of a narration comes upon some saying or action of another good man. I should imagine that he would like to personate him, and will not be ashamed of this sort of imitation. He will be most ready to play the part of a good man when he is acting firmly and wisely, in a less degree when he is overtaken by illness or love or drink, or has met with any other disaster. But when he comes to a character which is unworthy of him, he will not make a study of that. He will disdain such a person, and will assume his likeness, if at all, for a moment only when he is performing some good action. At other times he will be ashamed to play a part which he has never practiced, nor will he like to fashion and frame himself after the baser models. He feels the employment of such an art, unless in jest, to be beneath him, and his mind revolts at it. So I should expect, he replied. Then he will adopt a mode of narration such as we have illustrated out of Homer. That is to say, his style will be both imitative and narrative. But there will be very little of the former, and a great deal of the latter. Do you agree? Certainly, he said. That is the model which such a speaker must necessarily take. But there is another sort of character who will narrate anything, and the worse he is, the more unscrupulous he will be. Nothing will be too bad for him, and he will be ready to imitate anything, not as a joke, but in right good earnest, and before a large company. As I was just now saying, he will attempt to represent the roll of thunder, the noise of wind and hail, or the creaking of wheels and pulleys, and the various sound of flutes, pipes, trumpets, and all sorts of instruments. He will bark like a dog, bleat like a sheep, or crow like a crock. His entire art will consist in imitation of voice and gesture, and there will be very little narration. That, he said, will be his mode of speaking. These, then, are the two kinds of style? Yes. And would you agree with me in saying that one of them is simple and has but slight changes, and if the harmony and rhythm are also chosen for their simplicity, the result is that the speaker, if he speaks correctly, is always pretty much the same in style, and he will keep within the limits of a single harmony, for the changes are not great, and in like manner he will make use of nearly the same rhythm? That is quite true, he said whereas the other requires all sorts of harmonies and all sorts of rhythms if the music and the style are to correspond, because the style has all sorts of changes. That is also perfectly true, he replied. 
and do not the two styles or the mixture of the two comprehend all poetry and every form of expression in words no one can say anything except in one or the other of them or in both together they include all he said and shall we receive into our state all the three styles or one only of the two unmixed styles or would you include the mixed i should prefer only to admit the pure imitator of virtue yes i said adamantus but the mixed style is also very charming and indeed the pantomimic which is the opposite of the one chosen by you is the most popular style with children and their attendants and with the world in general i do not deny it but i suppose you would argue that such a style is unsuitable to our state in which human nature is not twofold or manifold for one man plays one part only yes quite unsuitable and this is the reason why in our state and in our state only we shall find a shoemaker to be a shoemaker and not a pilot also and a husbandman to be a husbandman and not a dykist also and a soldier a soldier and not a trader also and the same throughout true he said and therefore when any one of these pantomimic gentlemen who are so clever that they can imitate anything comes to us and makes a proposal to exhibit himself in his poetry we will fall down and worship him as a sweet and holy and wonderful being but we must also inform him that in our state such as he are not permitted to exist the law will not allow them and so when we have anointed him with myrrh and set a garland of wool upon his head we shall send him away to another city for we mean to employ for our soul's health the rougher and severer poet or storyteller who will imitate the style of the virtuous only and will follow those models which we prescribed at first when we began the education of our soldiers we certainly will he said if we have the power then now my friend i said that part of music or literary education which relates to the story or myth may be considered to be finished for the matter and manner have both been discussed i think so too he said next in order will follow melody and song that is obvious every one can see already what we ought to say about them if we are to be consistent with ourselves i fear said glaucon laughing that the word every one hardly includes me for i cannot at the moment say what they should be though i may guess at any rate you can tell me that a song or ode has three parts the words the melody and the rhythm that degree of knowledge i may presuppose yes he said so much as that you may and as for the words there will surely be no difference between words which are and which are not set to music both will conform to the same laws and these have already been determined by us yes and the melody and rhythm will depend upon the words certainly we were saying when we spoke of the subject matter that we had no need of lamentation and strains of sorrow true and which are the harmonies expressive of sorrow you are musical and can tell me the harmonies which you mean are the mixed or tenor lydian and the full tone or bass lydian and such like these then i said must be banished even to women who have a character to maintain they are of no use and much less to men certainly in the next place drunkenness and softness and indolence are utterly unbecoming the character of our guardians utterly unbecoming and which are the softer drinking harmonies the ionian he replied and the lydian they are termed relaxed well and are these of any military use quite the reverse he replied and if so the dorian and the phrygian are the only ones which you have left i answered of the harmonies i know nothing but i want to have one warlike to sound the note or accent which a brave man utters in the hour of danger and stern resolve or when his cause is failing 
and he is going to wounds or death or is overtaken by some other evil, and at every such crisis meets the blows of fortune with firm step and a determination to endure, and another to be used by him in times of peace and freedom of action, when there is no pressure of necessity, and he is seeking to persuade God by prayer, or man by instruction and admonition, or on the other hand, when he is expressing his willingness to yield to persuasion or entreaty or admonition, and which represents him when by prudent conduct he has attained his end, not carried away by his success, but acting moderately and wisely under the circumstances, and acquiescing in the event. These two harmonies I ask you to leave, the strain of necessity and the strain of freedom, the strain of the unfortunate and the strain of the fortunate, the strain of courage and the strain of temperance. These, I say, leave. And these, he replied, are the Dorian and Phrygian harmonies of which I was just now speaking. Then, I said, if these and these only are to be used in our songs and melodies, shall we not want multiplicity of notes or a panharmonic scale? I suppose not. Then we shall not maintain the artificers of lyres with three corners and complex scales? Are the makers of any other many-strained, curiously harmonized instruments? Certainly not. But what do you say to flute-makers and flute-players? Would you admit them into our state when you reflect that in this composite use of harmony the flute is worse than all the stringed instruments put together? Even the panharmonic music is only an imitation of the flute? Clearly not. There remain only the lyre and the harp for use in the city, and the shepherds may have a pipe in the country. That is surely the conclusion to be drawn from the argument. The preferring of Apollo and his instruments to Marcius and his instruments is not at all strange, I said. Not at all, he replied. And so, by the dog of Egypt, we have been unconsciously purging the state, which not long ago we termed luxurious. And we have done wisely, he said. Then let us now finish the purgation, I said. Next, in order to harmonies, rhythms will naturally follow, and they should be subject to the same rules. For we ought not to seek out complex cisterns of meter, or meters of every kind, but rather to discover what rhythms are the expressions of a courageous and harmonious life, and when we have found them, we shall adopt the foot and the melody to words having a like spirit, not the words to the foot and melody. To say what these rhythms are will be your duty. You must teach me, as you have already taught me the harmonies. But indeed, he replied, I cannot tell you. I only know that there are some three principles of rhythm out of which metrical systems are framed, just as in sounds there are four notes out of which all the harmonies are composed. That is an observation which I have made. But what sort of lives they are, severally the imitations, I am unable to say. Then, I said, we must take Damon into our counsels, and he will tell us what rhythms are expressive of meanness, or insolence, or fury, or other unworthiness, and what are to be reserved for the expression of opposite feelings. And I think that I have an indistinct recollection of his mentioning a complex cretic rhythm, also a dactylic or heroic, and he arranged them in some manner which I do not quite understand, making the rhythms equal in the rise and fall of the foot, long and short alternating. And unless I am mistaken, he spoke of an iambic as well as of a trochaic rhythm, and assigned them the short and long quantities. Also in some cases he appeared to praise or censure the movement of the foot quite as much as the rhythm, or perhaps a combination of the two, for I am not certain what he meant. These matters, however, as I was saying, had better be referred to Damon himself for the analysis of the subject would be difficult, you know. Rather so, I should say. But there is no difficulty in seeing that grace, or the absence of grace, is an effect of good or bad rhythm. None at all. End of Book 3, Part 2. Recording by Jim Allman. Houston, Texas.